Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we welcome back to our show in our studio, State Representative Lindsay Sabadosa. Representative Sabadosa, I'd like to ask you about a couple stories on the front page of today's Daily Hampshire Gazette. The first one, not directly involving the legislature, but involving a matter of significance to this community. And I'm wondering how you react to it. It is the story about the verdict and the sentence in the Rintala case. Can you tell us how you feel, how you think this has affected the fabric of your community? Your perspective, please. Oh, well, you know, this has been a case that's a long, long time <coughs> in the coming. Um, you know, I, I read the article today, and I will say my heart immediately went to the child uh, of the couple who's been involved in this. And I, I read the comments that she made about having lost effectively both of her parents at this point. And it, it is really heart-wrenching. That is the real victim uh, in this whole saga. Made me really sad. Made my heart go out. Her statement to the court, don't take my mother away from me again, please. Yeah. I was struck by that. Um, and this idea that somehow the more life we take away from someone who's committed a transgression or committed a crime, uh, that somehow if we just put them in jail for more time, that is justice. It's something that does not equate, equate for me. And after f being in the criminal justice system and working worked in criminal justice since I was 18 years old, yeah. um, it still doesn't compute for me. Let's lock them up. Um, on the other hand, that's the job that we give to judges, figure out for how long, if at all, you want to lock someone up for or what you think justice requires putting someone in a cage for. I, I, I don't get it. I understand retribution, uh, vengeance, uh, getting even to some degree. All that plays into all of us as human beings. I got that. But I don't quite get why sending someone back to prison who's already been in prison for seven and a half years, why that is a good thing to do as a societal matter. I mean, that's how it strikes me. Well, I'm wondering, Representative, so you're the judge. This case has been no. tried four times. This case has been tried. This is the fourth time. Right. A jury decided uh, against first-degree murder. There was no deliberate premeditation. They decided. No malice of forethought for second degree. They came up with a manslaughter. Yeah. She served seven and a half years. The state is asking for, what, 17, 20 years, something like that. What do you think? It was 15 to 17 in the article. 15 yeah, to 17. 15 to 17, and I think, what is it, four, four and a half? She has four and a half to six to serve. She served seven, seven and a half. Right. She's eligible for parole after uh, 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 most of the sentences has been served on the lower number. Right. Luckily, I'm meeting with the parole board later today, so these are questions I can <laughs> ask. <them. laughs> but, um, you know, these are, these are impossible cases. I'm glad that I'm not the judge in this case. Um, I, I don't really want to opine because I didn't watch everything, and I think that that would be unfair. Um, and also, we're asking you the most difficult question that is asked any judge who has done it for a long time and been in the system for a long time. It's an, it's an impossible question. But I do think this case really highlights, we, we always think of the victim of the crime as the person who is directly impacted, the person who suffers the, the physical or, or mental or emotional injury. But that is really not the case. There are victims of crimes that just ripple out. So, you know, even the family members, the grandparents, the children, the... It, this affects communities and rips them apart. And the way we punish crime with perpetual incarceration doesn't heal that. And we haven't really understood that as a society, that there has, there have to, we have to figure out better ways 
to <clears throat> to respond in cases like this, where this was obviously a domestic issue that um, there was no help provided early on. You know, just from what I've read in the Gazette, it feels <laughs> like this went on for there was a lot of turmoil for a long time that culminated in something really. <clears throat> Terrible. What strikes me is that this is a societal norm for us. Someone has committed a manslaughter, that's the jury's mm-hmm. verdict, and therefore how many years uh, is appropriate to take away from the person's life? And the judgment here was about 15 years. Why is that right? By the way, most people don't realize this, the American system of justice imposes longer sentences than almost any other system in the world. We put people in prison for a long, long time compared to everyone else, but it becomes the norm. So say, yeah, 15 to 17, as if, you know, we're giving out M&Ms. <laughs> I mean, really, I, I, I find the system, this is not a criticism of the judge in this case, but the system that says, here's how we achieve justice. It, we, have, we have distorted uh, what is justice by equating with how many years can we take away from a person's life. Let me... More you want to say about this? No, I just I, the thing that strikes me. This is such an extraordinary case that four different juries entertained this question of whether she committed first degree murder, and three of those fours said no, and the one that said yes uh, was exposed to uh, evidence that the Supreme well, Judicial Court said yeah, was that, wrong. That's not quite accurate. Three out of four didn't say no. Two had. There were two hung juries where the majority of the well, jurors... Well, I'm saying, but they said no because you need a unanimity. Among in, the the third, in the third one, there was a conviction of first-degree murder, which was overturned by the Supreme Judicial Court on evidence that should never have come in. Right. Never, ever, ever. What I was saying that plays a role in my thinking that, that uh, it was impossible to get unanimity from jurors with, without putting in evidence that didn't belong before the jury. So mm. I have to think about that when I think about this verdict. We turn to another story. Front, front page of the Daily Hampshire Gazette. Maybe Round, you roundabout. Uh, roundabout. <laughs> <laughs> the roundabout in East Hampton. Yeah, that was right on the top of my list. Okay. But perhaps you want to share the headline with us. So I think that the uh, the one you're talking about is perhaps House Advances Gun Law Changes. No, Oh, yes, that was it, yes. now that you mention it. Hunt House Advances Gun Law Changes. This is a big deal. This is a huge deal, yes. This is a very significant piece of legislation, and it is one that has garnered a lot of controversy um, and certainly a lot of emails and phone calls from, from people. Um, I think that... And we, we often say like both sides, but I don't think that's really true in this case. The the or, or pro-gun organizations in Massachusetts really, really um, encourage their members to do a lot of outreach. And so And they're very effective. Let, let, I mean uh, do you does no. your off- <laughs> actually they were not very effective. Um well, I, explain explain that. Yeah, and- I would say that they weren't really effective because uh, a lot of times when an organization asks you to send an email, you know, they send they give you a form letter, they tell you what to write. They'll sometimes say, you know, if you want to personalize this, please do that. I, I like to remind people if you're gonna personalize it at least like a name at the top instead of dear blank is always nice. Um, but uh, the, the emails honestly were not very effective. They were very dramatic. Um, you are taking all of my guns away from me. This is unconstitutional. You're a fascist. You're a socialist. This is treason. I'm going to move out of the country if you pass this. So no, they were not very effective emails. I will say, because I have amazing and wonderful constituents, and I do answer my emails, I wrote back to many of them and said, this is unhelpful. Can you tell me what you don't like about the bill? And many of them responded with really great 
thoughtful comments. And so this legislation, which started months and actually last session it started, has changed dramatically because of the people who took the time to offer real concrete feedback. And that is something I, I want people to understand. Bills do not, they're not like chiseled into stone when they're first written, right? They change a lot. And if you're willing to engage with your legislator, they can change in ways that benefit the implementation of the bill. If we just yell at each other, it is very hard to understand how to make that bill better. And I, I just I hope everyone hears that and implements that in their communications. Representative Sabados, really interesting to me. When I said effective, I didn't actually have in mind that it affected your perspective, which, <laughs> which was how, how you took it. And I appreciate that. Did it, did it influence your view of the proposed legislation? What I meant, actually, was that they're effective in getting their membership to respond and to contact their legislators and to get involved in this. I would like to know how the bill now stands and what you think the most important provisions are and why they matter. I actually brought my little cheat sheet with me <laughs> about the legislation because it has changed so many times. And that's, I think, the, the thing that people do need to understand. Like a, a version of this bill, after 11 listening sessions occurred across the state, a version of this bill came out that a lot of people had some very legitimate concerns with. Um, I will say there were some provisions around storage of guns that didn't... Um, they sounded really good on paper, but they didn't make a lot of practical sense. There were some issues around where you can hunt that were really challenging. It would have changed. You would have had to preemptively put up a sign that said, you're allowed to hunt on my property, which is the opposite of how we do things and have always done things in Western Massachusetts and probably the rest of the country. Hunting prohibited. Hunt, now we say <laughs> hunting prohibited, but the sign would have had, said, would have had to say, sure, you can, you can come if you want. Um, and that would have made hunting, I think, really, really challenging. Um, there were also some questions about serial, serializations, if I can say that correctly. So what had to have registration numbers on it because the legislation in great part is going after a couple things. First of all, the bill is about modernizing firearm laws. Firearm laws in the state are really confusing because they've been updated multiple times. <laughs> and so the goal was to take all of those laws, streamline them, and make one easy to follow uh, bill that could be implemented and that people would understand how to how to um, how to actually implement. The other goals of the legislation really had to do with ghost guns. So guns that are coming into the state where there's no ability to track them. So they don't have numbers on them. They're often guns that can be assembled in parts. We also talk about 3D printed guns like kits, things that you can make at home. You know, normally if you go and buy a gun, there's a registration. We know that the sale has happened. With these kits and ghost guns, we have no idea. And that's dangerous for all of us. It's particularly dangerous for law enforcement. Um, and law enforcement has been really clear that it is, this is something that we needed to do as a state because, again, guns have changed. The last time we passed gun laws, I believe, was in 2004. And in all of those years, uh, the way weapons are produced has, has changed dramatically, hence the need for modernization. I wish you could tell us a bit more about the politics of this because what strikes me about gun control uh, – or public safety legislation, how you phrase it, it mm -hmm. perhaps reflects how you feel about the bill. Yeah. I'm interested in this. We often think of uh, the NRA and gun, gun supporters as being kind of on the right wing of our political spectrum. And we often think of the police in the same way. 
And yet in this instance, the police actually in the main say, no, these gun control laws, to use that phrase, are actually really good for public safety, really good for our safety, really good for the public's safety. And I'm wondering how that played out uh, in the House of Representatives in Massachusetts, if you care to comment. Sure. So this was actually a bit different because some of the things that we were trying to do in the bill and and um, that did change as we went through were sort of discussing how uh, how police officers have guns and particularly police officers are who are off duty. So one of the things in an initial iteration was that officers couldn't just carry you know wherever they wanted while they were off duty. There are provisions in the bill consistently that um, we have now prohibited guns in schools, which was previously the law, but we've also added municipal buildings and polling places. That was not the law before. I've been told that I am wrong, but I am not wrong because I have gone and read the mass general law. It was up to local municipalities to make that decision. But even within that, there's a carve out that says, but law enforcement, if, if they need to bring their weapon into a polling place, can do so. The question was really about the off-duty officers. A lot of people are saying off-duty officers should be able to do that as well because are you ever really off-duty? There's another argument that says even retired officers should be able to do this. But we did um, really try to listen to the feedback from police. And I I represent a lot of very rural communities. Uh, They don't have... I was going to say 10. Some of them don't have two police officers. Uh, and so there is really no off-duty in that job. You are really on call 24 hours a day if there are two of you representing a town. And so we tried to listen to that, and we made adjustments within the legislation to allow police to do their jobs the way they have been doing it and the way that they say is the best way for them to do that, you know, far from us to tell them what best practice is. So we tried to, to listen to that because we did get some pushback, even from law enforcement, around certain components of the bill. This is a huge omnibus bill with a lot of moving parts. And so, um, you know, we, we had those initial, ten, those initial 11 listening sessions. There was a version of the bill There was then a public hearing. There was another version of the bill. There was even more feedback from legislators, and yet another version of the bill came out, and that was before the bill was amended on the House floor. So this has been a a really mammoth piece of work. If if one of our listeners who is uh, a gun enthusiast and really concerned about uh, whether or not their gun rights are going to be impacted adversely by this, what say you to them? Well, I would say a couple things. So, you know, we've first of all included provisions in the bill so that if you currently own guns and you own them legally in the state of Massachusetts, there's a grandfather clause. So whatever you own is yours. I have heard so many people say, you're coming to take all of my guns. We are absolutely not. We put it right in the bill. No, we are not doing that. Your guns are your guns. No one is taking them. We did, however, um, based off of the federal definition of assault weapons and the state definition in the 2004 bill update uh, our ban on assault weapons in the state and on large capacity feeders. Now, again, if you own one of those guns today, you're grandfathered in, but for the future, we are saying that we are fully implementing the ban and we've included a new test to define what an assault weapon is because the technology has changed so much. Before there was a three-pronged test, now there's a two-pronged test and it is all very clearly spelled out. So that affects the future and what you're buying. But again, if you are a responsible gun owner, you have your license to carry, you've done all the right things, this doesn't really change anything for you. We are speaking with State Representative Lindsay Sabadosa, the representative for the 1st Hampshire District, which is comprised of 
Northampton, Chesterfield, Cummington, Goshen, Hatfield, Plainfield, West Hampton, Williamsburg, and Worthington. He is reading, just for everyone at home. He is reading. <laughs> he did not do that from memory. <laughs> yeah, not even close. We'll be right back with the representative right after this. Bust. Mother cried as he walked out. Don't take your guns to town, son. Leave your guns at You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Art and history, material objects that tell a story. Porcelain, silk, pearls. In Sally Wen Mao's new collection of poems, The Kingdom of Surfaces, these material objects of art frame an important conversation on beauty, empire, commodification, and violence. The Kingdom of Surfaces is a finalist for the Maya Angelou Book Prize. Broadside Bookshop presents author Sally Wen Mao reading from The Kingdom of Surfaces this Thursday at 7 at the Edwards Church. Following her reading, Sally Wen Mao will join in a conversation with novelist and poet Ocean Wong. The reading is free and open to the public, but space is limited. So reserve your seat now at broadsidebooks.com. Sally Wen Mao reading from The Kingdom of Surfaces, plus a conversation with Ocean Wong this Thursday at 7 at the Edwards Church, presented by Northampton's independent bookstore, Broadside Bookshop. Every time you open your energy bill, you cringe. And with good reason, because you're paying too much. The easy answer is solar. And taking advantage of solar energy with Franklin First Federal Credit Union is easy. Our solar loan puts solar on the table. And a local expert can show you all the ways it pays to install solar. Visit franklinfirst.org slash solarloans for more details. That's franklinfirst.org slash solarloans. Franklin First Federal Credit Union, federally insured by NCUA. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts, and messages from community nonprofits. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with State Representative Lindsay Sabados, the representative from the First Hampshire District. Want me to do those towns and city, the city again? Oh, no, no, it's okay. You want to do it backwards in reverse <laughs> alphabetical order, something like that, Representative? Not, not today. We'll do it next time. Okay. So, again, front page of today's Daily Hampshire Gazette headline House advances gun law changes, debate shows divide over whether a proposal will curb v- gun violence. The House advances, meaning to pass the House of yes. Representatives. What happens now with this bill? So this bill has followed a different trajectory than a lot of bills, although despite what I have heard, it is actually standard practice. It's just something that happens for bills that are a little bit more high profile. Uh, the House has worked on its version of the bill. We have passed that. Usually the the bill goes to the Senate and the bill will go over to the Senate. But what I expect is going to happen, which again, very normal, is the Senate is working on their own version of the bill. So I would expect, if I had to bet, which I don't, that the Senate, when they get this bill, is going to um, further amend the House bill and uh, completely replace it with their own version of the bill, which they will then debate and uh, will then send back to the House because it is so different. We will set up a conference committee, and then we will work out all of those differences in that committee. And then it will go back to the House and to the Senate the, 
final bill out of the conference committee, three members of the House, three members of the Senate. They'll come up with a variation on the bill, or they might adopt one or the other, but there'll be a... It's usually a compromise. And then that bill goes back to the House and the Senate for an up or down vote. Yes exactly. Or no, no more amendments. No more amendments at that point. So, you know, for people who've reached out, I've, I've tried to say to them, like, we have tried to incorporate as much feedback as we possibly can into the bill. That, that's reasonable. I mean, some people have said, just throw, throw the bill in the garbage and set it on fire. That That's not a reasonable comment. But for those who've made reasonable comments, we've tried to include them. If people have more of those comments, if they're reading the bill, and I'm really happy to engage with whoever wants to and go into nitty, you know, very, the real details of the bill, um, they should be reaching out to their senators at this point and saying, this is what I love about the House bill, and this is what I absolutely hate about the House bill, because the Senate will have the opportunity to change things. Have the winds whispered to you what changes the Senate might want? Has any senator told you what might be a brewing in the Senate? No senator has told me that. I don't think in, I, I think there are very few senators who know exactly what's going to go into that bill. Um, I've certainly spoken to a number of senators who have said that they're having really intense conversations about the different pieces and they're sort of polling all of the members to see where they stand. I mean, this bill passed the House, but it wasn't a unanimous vote. Um, it was it was a pretty it was 120 to uh, whatever 38. Yeah, 120 to 38. So so still, I mean, even uh, you know, very much a, a veto-proof majority for sure, which is now 81, um, but uh, totally not unanimous. So there's always there's always room for improvement. And I think at the end of the day, we just all want a really strong bill that we can send to the governor and that she'll be willing to sign. Has the governor indicated whether she'll be willing to sign? So the governor, uh, she has not said. It would, I think it would be inappropriate for the governor to to say that until she sees a final copy of, of the bill. You know, you never want to say, oh, yeah, I'm going to sign it until you want to read it first. Um, but I will say that this is something that was a priority for the governor when she was an attorney general. Um, she did a lot of work on cracking down on the trafficking of weapons, particularly illegal weapons in the state of Massachusetts. So I think um, we are in friendly territory. A final word from you about this legislation and its process, and I guess most importantly, whether you believe it will in fact make us safer. So there's a new representative. Um, Her name is Adrienne Ramos, and she is an attorney from the Andover area, and she gave her inaugural speech on this bill, and I share this because... You know, we all question that. Will the legislation we pass have an effect? But um, Representative Ramos, again, being an attorney, she works uh, with a lot of intimate partner violence cases. And she shared a story of a client who was able to get a harassment order against someone um, who was causing difficulty in her life. Um, But a harassment order, the type that she was able to get, was not one where that person's guns were taken away from them. Um, And... She shared the story of how that woman was shot while she was sitting in the car uh, by the person who, with whom, against whom she had a harassment order, but that order, again, did not remove his guns. Now, we all know that we can't go back in time. There are lots of extenuating circumstances, but this bill changes that. With that harassment order, those guns would have been taken away. And so when she got up and gave that speech, well, I will freely admit I cried through <laughs> Uh, it felt like, yes, this legislation has the potential to actually save people's lives and to do very good things, and I am very proud to have voted for it. Mm. We've been speaking with State Representative Lindsay Sabadosa. Thanks so much for your insights and your time and, you. and your leadership. When the law breaks in, how you gonna go? 
shut down on the pavement or waiting on This road. is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A 41-year-old wearman is facing multiple charges after an attack in Northampton. A police captain ran out of the Center Street station around 2 p.m. upon hearing a woman screaming near the corner of Masonic and Center Streets after being stabbed in the neck with needle-nose pliers. The woman told the captain she'd been stabbed by a man known to her. Another passerby held down the suspect until another officer arrived to place him under arrest. That suspect, Russell Scott Mayo, is expected to be arraigned in Northampton District Court today. Kara Rintala will serve 12 to 14 years in prison for strangling her wife. Judge Francis Flannery delivered the sentence after a passionate speech in the Hampshire Superior Court yesterday. The taking of a life is a, a terrible thing. Uh, it's the ultimate harm for Anna Marie. It was the end of the world. Every experience she ever had or ever would have was taken from her forever. Rintala will receive credit for the seven and a half years she has already spent incarcerated before trial and after her conviction in 2016 before it was overturned on appeal five years later. East Hampton officials are now considering a roundabout to handle increased traffic expected due to a proposed multi-million dollar project near the site of the former Tasty Top off Route 10. The 33-acre development would cost an estimated $30 million. The East Hampton Planning Board has until December 1st to issue a decision on the project. Rain develops from south to north here this morning. The rain could be briefly heavy at times, especially during the middle of the day with a high of 60 to 64. Rain and drizzle continues tonight. Evening temperatures in the 50s, an overnight low of 48 to 54. Showers and drizzle tomorrow, a high of 58 to 62. Looks like tomorrow will be wettest in the morning. And then mostly cloudy with scattered showers on Sunday, a high in the low to mid 50s. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Sunday mornings on WHMP means polka. Celebrate the Valley's proud Polish heritage with Polka Carousel. Every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, TZ brings his award-winning Polka Carousel to the airwaves of the Valley, playing the polka classics and the latest polka hits. There are polka hits? Brought to you by Saluzniak Funeral Home, Northampton's funeral home for over 110 years and four generations of unparalleled thoughtful memorial care. It's Polka Carousel, WHMP. Finding great candidates to hire can be like, well, trying to find a needle in a haystack. Sure, you can post your job to some job board, but then all you can do is hope the right person comes along, which is why you should try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com free. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. Its powerful technology identifies people with the right experience and actively invites them to apply to your job. You get qualified candidates fast. So while other companies might deliver a lot of hay, ZipRecruiter finds you what you're looking for. The needle in the haystack. Four out of five employers who post a job in ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And right now you can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash free. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash free. ZipRecruiter.com slash free. Here comes the money. You could be one word away from $1,000. 
It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. This is our Your State You segment, our time with Max Page, who is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, who has with him and us today two very special guests. I'll leave the pleasure and honor of that introduction to Max in just a minute. Max, I would like to ask you about two stories in today's Republican uh, and other media as well before we start with our two very special educators. Uh, first, from Holyoke. City asks state to end school receivership. Is this a big deal? Is Holyoke? Yes, it is a big deal, partly because there is a united front there between the mayor and the educator unions. And there's a strong case to be made that it is time to for Holyoke to get out of receivership, partly because receivership across the state has failed. And that's part of what we're advocating for. That, that is the Mass Teachers Association in uh, the Thrive Act to end receivership for Lawrence and Holyoke and Southbridge, the three districts in receivership. One other story in today's media, uh, Dateline Amherst, assistant superintendent no longer employed by district. I know you are a resident of Amherst. I'm wondering if you do or maybe don't want to comment on that. This is a story that Amherst assistant superintendent Doreen Cunningham, who has been on administrative leave since may admit investigations that have roiled the district regarding mistreatment of lgbtq students is no longer employed by the district any comment on that max page uh, uh, you know what bill it's such a complicated situation i will say that i just want to shout out that it, it was the students and their student newspaper with incredible reporting really uncovered some really troubling element things that were going on in the school district and i think there's just a lot there's investigations going on and really trying to trying to understand what happened and 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 help and make sure that this doesn't happen again to the kids in in amherst one last story in today's media dateline westfield healy considers housing migrants at westfield state with the state's shelter system rapidly filling to capacity, Westfield State University remains a possible location where the state might house some migrants. Any perspective or do you care to share on that? Look, look Bill, all I'll say is, I mean, obviously we need to help provide shelter, obviously not just short-term, but long-term for migrants into our communities. I will say there's a lot of talk about how there's not enough money, but in fact, uh, we just passed or, the, you know, within the governor signed a tax bill that, um, gives hundreds of millions of dollars back to the very wealthiest. There's some good things in that tax package, but there was a hundreds of millions of dollars that really are going out the door for no purpose at all that could be used to um, help um, house and then bring these um, migrants into our communities. Max, let's now we've talked about the things I want to talk about. Let's talk about the things you want to talk about. What do you got yes. for us? Well, we have two wonderful guests here from the Hildreth Institute. Um, Bahar Akman Imdodin um, and Hiba Aga, who are, who are uh, members or leaders in the, the Hildreth Institute and also 
authors of a recent report, Seizing the Opportunity, Reversing Enrollment Declines in Higher Education. So welcome, Bahar and Hiba. Thank you for having us. Okay. Thank you. So you are have been playing a central role in developing policy and really looking at the situation in public higher education for a number of years now. The Hildreth Institute has played a really important role in, in I would say, lifting up the issue, but also deepening the policy discussions. So give us first, um, if you could, talk about what is the, 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 the old and new problems we are facing that you lift up in this report, because I think there's longstanding issues in public higher education, affordability and access, but there's some new troubling trends that you lift up. So let's start there, if you would. Maybe, um, Bahar, you could start. Absolutely. I can uh, thank you first, of course, for having us here. It's a very pressing issue in our state. Um, I can give a little bit of background on how we came to this affordability crisis in higher education that is just not so new. Um, and I think here we hear a lot of people talking about, you know, in the 80s and the 90s, having been able to go to public education, higher education and working on the side. And it's absolutely true. It was very possible, for instance, in 87 to have a uh, a side job in the summer plus some part-time job during a school year and cover a tuition that was in the tune of 1,300, uh, and But then when we fast forward to today, it's a staggering 288% increase for tuition and fees alone. So you, when you pair that with the rising cost of living, the financial strain on students is, is, is very real. So the big question we always get is how did we get here? Just recently, I was asked that question um, at a state hearing, and uh, and I think that that's something that is very interesting to track historically. And um, and when we look at public higher education in the 80s, when you know we had significant economic constraint and a swelling federal deficit, we shifted a lot of the responsibilities. Uh, on the state, and that's where public higher education needed to compete against vital sectors like healthcare, welfare, infrastructure. And that's when we saw decision makers passing towards a high tuition, high, high aid model. And that the logic was, well, maybe we can charge more tuition and fees and target some of the financial aid to students who need it. So the plan was to let tuition revenue cover about 35% of the cost of our public higher education, which at the time was really more in the low 10 to 18% nationally. And what we see, it's essentially backfire. This lack of funding for public higher education meant that every dollar reduction in state appropriation resulted in a tuition increase that was about 17 cents. So it's not one-to-one, -one, but it's uh, that's kind of why we can see how much, you know, the appropriation had to go down for these 17 cents to add up to a 288% increase over, you know, the last couple of decades. And meanwhile, the state has not keep up, the, has not kept the financial aid to low-income students. So now we see more and more students, even middle-income students, increasingly relying on student loans. Okay, let me. So we're we're talking with 
Bahar Akman Imdodin and Hiba Aga of, of the Hildreth Institute. So let me just try to capture, I think, what you what I what I gathered from that. We have this huge disinvestment from the state, huge increase in tuition and fees with the idea that, oh, we'll help out people with financial aid who need it. But in fact, there was not nearly uh, that that failed. In other words, they did not follow through. So what we have is really rising, rising tuition, but not the financial aid. So this leads to a huge debt in debt increase and other factors. Hiba Aga, could you just talk for a second? What's what are we seeing in terms of enrollment that you talk about in this new Hildreth report, seizing the opportunity, reversing enrollment declines in higher education? Because I think that's really I think people are really stunned to will be stunned to hear what's happened in enrollment definitely yeah and um you know as our mission as the hildreth institute too you know we are really dedicated to restoring the promise of higher education as an engine of social upward mobility and i just want to put an emphasis on that word restoring and it's something i think that both you and bahar are alluding to that you know no longer is higher education that social engine of upward mobility because of these costs and so we really went into our report in an investigative mode um, we wanted to highlight the urgency of the issue of enrollment declines at our public higher education institutions um, and we knew from looking at the numbers that enrollments were going down um, and we wanted to know why that was and who it was affecting um, and so we'll later discuss why now is a really good opportunity to make a change <laughs> on this front. Um, but one of the things, you know, I'm sure you've all read about and heard about is the demographic cliff, which basically implies that less people are enrolling in college because there are less young people passing through um, high schools. And so what we found in our paper um, seizing the opportunity um, is that in massachusetts um, there were more high school graduates uh, um, coming out from um, 2015 to 16 to the 2020 to 21 years um, and so that was the good news that there are actually more students graduating from high school but what we then went on to notice as we continued the investigation um, was that despite these gains in more high school graduates uh, it wasn't translating into immediate college enrollment and so that's where we saw big declines specifically at our public higher education institutions and specifically at community colleges and state universities um, and so that was the first troubling trend. Um, All right, so let's, let me just make sure we, I, uh, listeners understand this. And then what mm -hmm. I'm getting is we, have, we are succeeding in graduating more students, and I think across all demographic groups. In other words, that's good. That's a great gain, and that's partly because of the huge amounts of funding that I will say the Mass Teachers Association, among many others, have helped win. But you're saying that despite that, we are seeing declining enrollments, especially in those groups that had been making gains in exactly. public higher education. That's really exactly. Disturbing. So you hit the nail on the head that we've seen gains across all racial groups and socioeconomic groups as well. But you know, the enrollment declines we were seeing were definitely affecting those groups the most. So that was the first piece of evidence that we had about the affordability 
um, you know, variable into this equation. But yeah, that's exactly right. So listen, I you know they, we're going to have to continue on because I want to get to some of the solutions. So we've seen this problem, huge rising costs, and we know that we've heard read nationally and land locally about the rising student debt crisis. You're saying now there's more high school graduates, but actually fewer enrolling. So what are some of the solutions that you, um, Hiba Aga and Bahar Akman in Doden have from this from the Hildreth Institute on solving this crisis? What are some of the, the top lines approaches um, that you see? Um, I can give, you know, just the big top line approaches and Bahar can get into it more. And I'll go really quickly because, <laughs> um, but, you know, some of the things I think are reinvesting into a high quality public higher education. Um, so that's definitely one big one. Uh, reforming our financial aid programs to cover students' unmet needs, and that's something we can go into in further detail. Um, and expand the state's commitment to a debt-free college education, because we know that students are taking on that burden of having to cover that gap by borrowing more to go to college. So those are the three big ones, and we can get into it some more. And Barb, maybe you can just give the last word, and then we, or we hope you'll both come back. At, this debate is going to go on all year, so we hope you will come back to discuss this in, in greater detail. Absolutely. I think that uh, we have nevertheless a positive outlook at the legislature and administration. We want to really commend they're already starting to increase uh, uh, investment in state financial aid. And now I think it's the time using the fair share money uh, to simplify the current complex system, to consolidate a very big commitment towards debt-free uh, public higher education. And it's a very opportune time uh, to do so, especially with the prohibition of affirmative action. Uh, we need to send that very clear, simple message that this higher education system is here for uh, everyone who aspires for a degree. Well, thank you both, uh, Dr. Bahara Akman Imdoden and Hiba Aga from the Hildreth Institute for this really important report, seizing the opportunity, reversing enrollment declines in higher education. And we will absolutely, if you're willing, have you back on the show to talk further as we move forward for, in a discussion about high quality, debt-free public higher education. Thanks for being with absolutely. us. Absolutely, thank you. A conversation I can't wait to hear more of, and I promise I no news that day. No news to ask Max about. We'll do the whole show that, on that. Thanks so much, all of you. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Business West. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. 
rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. At Simply Safe, our award-winning home security has advanced sensors, HD cameras, and now this 24-7 live guard protection. Only from Simply Safe. Monitoring agents can see and speak to intruders through our indoor camera to help stop crime in real time and for fast police response. Now get 45% off any new system with Fast Protect Monitoring at simplysafe.com/radio. Advanced home security, 24-7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Did you know you can get your prescriptions for less at your local pharmacy? You can with GoodRx. It's the free app that can save you money on your medications. Just search for your prescription, choose the pharmacy and the price that works best for you, and then show your GoodRx coupon to your pharmacist at the drop-off counter. GoodRx works at over 70,000 pharmacies, including Walmart, Rite Aid, and Walgreens, and it works whether you have insurance or not. It's easy to save. Next time you drop off your prescription, check GoodRx. To start saving today, go to GoodRx.com. GoodRx is not insurance. And this is Artbeat with Donna Bell Cassis, who has with her and us today a very special guest who we welcome back to the studio. The honor and pleasure of this introduction is yours, Donna Bell Cassis. Thank you. Good morning, Bill, Buzz. Um, I just want to share that next week, the Art Salon, the first one of the season, is happening next Thursday, October 26th. And if you aren't familiar with the Art Salon, it's a dynamic social evening of engaging presentations by artists that are established and emerging, and they're all from the Pioneer Valley. And joining us today... And where is that? Man, where is that, Donabel? Well, we'll let you know. Okay. <laughs> it's... I'm going to, it's a teaser. Um, joining us today is Amanda Herman, who is one of the co-curators of the Art Salon and also the director of the University Museum of Contemporary Art at UMass. Welcome back, Amanda. Thank you, Donabelle. Very excited <laughs> to be here and love talking about the Art Salon. Well, it's exciting because it's the first one of the season. I know there's been a break over the summer, so it's always fun and exciting to see what's going to happen. And this way, what a great way to kick it off. It's going to be at the Shea Theater in Turner's Falls. How cool is that? If you haven't been to the Shea, let us know what it's like, Amanda. Yeah, it's one of my favorite uh, theaters in the area. It's just, uh, it's warm, it's beautiful. It's a great size for um, being connected to who's on stage. and. Um, it's just a great community up there. So we're really excited and honored to host the Art Salon there uh, next week on um, Thursday, October 26th. And we're hoping folks come around 6 and uh, we have incredible presentations that will start at 6.30. Now, so the Salon, the Art Salon provides a platform for artists and designers and creators of all mediums to present their work and ideas, which is a really great way into the studio practice. And, you know, we have all varieties of uh, genres that are covered there. Who are the artists for this salon? Yeah, we have four different artists this, this round. Um, and I think what unites them all is that they are 
um, multidisciplinary, all of them. Um, so I will, I'll give you a quick overview and I, we invite you to check the website for more information and to go to their websites. Um, the first artist will be Hannah Brookman um, and she really can um, do a wide range of mediums. She, she welds, she illustrates, she paints, um, she's a seamstress and an author. Seems like there's nothing she can't do. Um, she runs the fantastic store uh, Looky Here, um, and she also is um, an editor at Montague Public Access TV. Um, we're really excited to, to get an entry into her multidisciplinary work um, at the wow. Salon. Wow. I mean, if you haven't been to Looky Here up in Greenfield, that's such a cool space, too. So I'm looking forward to hearing about that as well as her artwork. Me too. Yeah, I think um, there's some really exciting stuff happening there. It's just a great community space and they're, um, they're really providing for the community there. And then her really creative uh, approach to everything. I think we will get to, to get a, um, a, a welcoming uh, explanation of how she, how she thinks and how she, what she's inspired by. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. The second artist is equally as inspiring, Joan O'Bearn. And she is a, a um, an artist and educator who really focuses in photography. Um, she actually went to my alma mater, the University of New Mexico, uh, wow. where she also taught photography there. Um, but mm -hmm. she now is um, the head of the photography department at Greenfield Community College. Mm -hmm. um, and she has really beautiful work. She uses a lot of analog photography, very um, old, old school cameras, and she manipulates photographs in really interesting ways. She's very interested in um, kind of maybe what is not seen initially and trying to bring us closer to that. Mm -hmm. um, she also has a really interesting uh, practice and work at the Greenfield Jail where she teaches photography classes. So hopefully we'll hear a little bit about that incredible work as well. So cool. Mm -hmm. The third artist is someone that I know from UMass. She's a MFA student, graduated a couple of years ago. Her name is Emily Terulia, and she is equally um, diverse and broad in the way she takes on art and thinks about what it can do in the world. She, um, she is an educator at heart and she is really, when she was here at UMass, we did a project with her where she collaborated with the Natural Sciences College um, and did a really exciting uh, science and art project, which she may speak about. Um, but she's really into workshops and thinking about how art can bring people together um, mm. to think about what's happening in the world. Oh, gosh, we could use that right now. We sure could. <laughs> um, and the last artist uh, does a similar, um, has a similar sort of approach to thinking about how art can address, solve, pick apart, think about the big issues of our time. Her name is Mariana Dixon Williams, um, and she uses electronic objects and creates these incredible installations that have the visitors think about identity, the environment, um, and how we simulate, emulate, and measure our world digitally. Um, mm. So it's really interesting work, a very different approach from the other three artists, but again, kind of linked in the way that she's kind of working around these big issues, thinking about different ways to communicate them, um, thinking about our bodies, about queerness, um, and thinking about how, how we're gonna approach um, this complex world in the future. And she, wow. um, yeah, all of these artists have exhibited widely. Um, Marion Dixon Williams uh, has exhibited 
internationally um, and has done projects as far flung as the Arctic Circle and also in South Africa. So, um, oh my gosh, what an amazing dynamic group of women artists at the salon. Uh, first of all, that's like probably the first for the art salon to have four women artists presenting or women identifying. And, you know, if you want to find out about these artists' work, you must come to the art salon next uh, Thursday, October 26th. It's going to be at the Shea Theater in Turner's Falls. And Amanda, how do, how do people um, participate? I know that, um, that these artists are paid based on um, some of the donations that people give for um, attendance. Yes, we have a sliding scale donation. Um, we're requesting between five and $15 or whatever you can give. Um, and the money does go directly to our artists. We, we really strongly believe in, in paying them for their work, paying them for the time and um, thought that goes into preparing these presentations. Um, so we hope that folks will, um, will support them in that way. And uh, we are so excited to, to hopefully see you all at the Shea Theater. Amanda. Amanda Herman, thank you so much for sharing this amazing Art Salon event next week. Um, I'm looking forward to being there and, and hearing about the amazing work. Um, and it'll be a fun evening. So thanks for sharing with us. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'll, I can't wait to see everybody there. This has been Artbeat on Talk the Talk. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It is critical that the investigation is not limited to federal violations of gender discrimination, but includes the alleged allegations of corruption, nepotism, abuse of power, and use of position to aid Ms. Cunningham's personal business. These allegations actually require an investigation by a different body than a Title IX investigator. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. Here's a slice of advice about pizza boxes. It's okay to recycle the entire pizza box as long as it's empty. For a long time, greasy boxes were assumed to cause recycling problems, but a new study proved they don't. It's time to capture the 3 billion pizza boxes used annually in the U.S. Visit RecycleSmartMA.org to learn more about what can and can't get recycled. After you've enjoyed tonight's pizza, turn the box inside out, discard what falls out, and recycle the rest. Brought to you by the Northampton DPW. WHMP Northampton and WRSI. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. You know, I've been thinking about how to uh, best introduce uh, the guests that we have here in studio, who I'm just so excited to meet and to have a conversation with. I thought maybe I should call her an adventurer. Maybe I should call her an extraordinary athlete. Um, I think I settled on, after reading all about Kari Castango, I think I decided to just call you a conservationist, and that's a good place to start. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Well, you have done something really remarkable. You just uh, completed last week a 410-mile swim of the Connecticut River. You are a member of the Connecticut River uh, Conservancy, um, and you did it, well, I guess there's my question. Why'd you swim 410 miles? Well, originally it started uh, because I was tired of doing flip turns in a pool, and a friend introduced me to the Connecticut River, and as uh, you had mentioned, I am an adventurer, 
So rather than swimming in one spot, and given that I'm a resident of South Hadley, I thought I'd go from Coolidge Bridge to the Route 202 Bridge. And then I decided to do Sunderland to Coolidge Bridge. And then I thought, well, let's do the whole river. Um, admittedly, when I had said that, I thought it was around 200 miles. And I figured I'd better look this up. And I did. And twice the length, twice the fun. <laughs> Sounds like a blast. It was. So you started way, way north. Where did you begin to swim? Well, actually, I actually, uh, right there in... Um, here in Northampton. And what I did is I did the sections, um, did all of Massachusetts first, and then I did uh, sections above the Vernon Dam in Vermont and Brattleboro, and then um, Connecticut. I actually took four months off from work um, to try to complete a, a more because I was uh, on average anywhere from 60 to 80 miles a summer and you know um, just wanted to keep making progress and then invariably um, this past year um, there was a last section for actually down from Colebrook to Colebrook New Hampshire Colebrook New Hampshire near Canada yeah roughly 25 30 miles south of the Canadian border so I guess the big question every listener should be asking, why did you do this? Well, um, my passion for swimming. And I was, um, a friend introduced me to the Connecticut River Conservancy and they asked me if I would be willing to partner with them. And I said yes, because, uh, you know, originally I didn't feel that I had something to say through my passion of swimming, but um, admittedly, I did not know the history of the river before I began swimming in it and was horrified about my ignorance. But then I realized I can help raise awareness for what the Con Connecticut River Conservancy has done, as well as everybody associated with them over the years, including everyone who participated in this last Source to Sea cleanup. So you, Kari Castango, are now a member of the Board of Trustees of the R Connecticut River Conservancy. So. Uh, what is the Conservancy? What does it do? Why should we support it? Well, it, it, uh, is, it's a voice for the Connecticut River watershed. It, um, it has the interests of all of the four states, or um, even a sliver of Maine, uh, to protect our waterways, our, uh, the habitat for, for fishing, for boating. It, um, it helps with the relicensing of dams. Uh, those are actively in progress right now. That relicensing only comes up every 40 to 50 years. So decisions that are being made now will impact the next 40 to 50 years. And if you think about, um, if you're drawn to water, whether it's an ocean, a pond, uh, skiing, etc. cetera, um, you have a connection to an essential element of life. And the Connecticut River Conservancy um, advocates for uh, the quality of the water and for the habitats and the communities in the area. I believe the Connecticut River is the longest river in eastern United States. I think, you know, right now we have um, climate change. Mm -hmm. There are... In, 
in, in the deluge that we suffered this year, there were uh, a number of breaches of sewage systems, I think in Agawam, up near Greenfield, mm -hmm. that uh, leached into the Connecticut uh, with unthinkable, you know, gallonage, I mean, like yeah. 400,000 gallons at a time of sewage. Um, so what does the Conservancy do and what is the relationship between what it does to help with those issues and your SWIM? How is your SWIM intended to help the Conservancy do its job? Well, the thing is, is that without their efforts, this SWIM would have not have been possible. Um, and they are they they work and partner with other local, state and federal agencies. And it's the idea, we can't do this alone. Every one of us in the community needs to um, get involved. And if you're not sure how to get involved, reach out to the Connecticut River Conservancy and they'll find a way to um, use, you know, use your, um, help you get involved. And, and before, I know Bill is itching to ask you a question, but sure. uh, how do people get in touch with the Conservancy? What is the website, if you know that? ctriver.org. CT as in Connecticut. Yeah. Yes, river.org. And if I um, may say, there's a donate bu button on that initial page, and all and any donations are uh, welcomed and appreciated. And just to let you know, any monies that I had raised during this course of this four-year adventure... 100 of the percent of the donations went to the Connecticut River Conservancy. And will continue to go that way. Absolutely. In, in, to, to celebrate Kari Costango's amazing swim. So, Kari, I, I'm really delighted that you want to spend your time with us talking about the Connecticut River Conservancy and the river and its preservation and its importance to the valley and the entire region and what it means for wildlife and not only as well as fish life, of course, and recreation and everything else. I love that. But I'm sorry, I'm having a little trouble getting over the gaga, wow, 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 you swam 410 <laughs> miles. Are you kidding me? What does a person have to do? And more specifically, what do you do, did you have to do, in order to be in shape to swim 410 miles? And by the way, how long did it take you? Well, um, I'll take the last part first, which is uh, it took me four years. And I think you entered the river 84 t different times on this. Is that right? That's correct. That's correct. And again, the, the goal was to uh, develop a connection with the river and... Um, and in order to um, do this, I swam at the Holyoke YMCA. They have great facilities, uh, great community, and I just kept swimming. And at time, uh, I did my research. I reached out. The Connecticut River Conservancy was wonderful, putting me in uh, contact with people who knew other sections of the river that I didn't uh, know of. You know, it's easy to get a better understanding of the river here in the Pioneer Valley as well as in um, just above from Brattleboro down as well as down to Connecticut. But I want to give a shout out to Tim Lewis who was instrumental in um, me completing the Connecticut River, uh, Connecticut portion of the river because after Hartford there's the uh, needed to take into account the tides, um, you know, yachts, um, just being able to just to be able to swim 
and not have to think about anything else. There's, there's, excuse me one second. I'd love to know. There are currents you have to deal with on the Connecticut? Yes, actually. There's um, the tidal waters coming up, and, um, and oftentimes what I would do, or not often, but what I would do is after high tide, I'd wait for about an hour to two hours, an hour and a half to two hours after high tide to be able to... So then the tide has changed directions and it's going out towards the Long Island Sound and I would take advantage of the river assisting me. I just want to point out that, that uh, you mentioned Tim Lewis. He is also one of your colleagues on the Board of Trustees of the uh, Connecticut uh, River Conservancy. And he's paddled the entire length of the river as well. So that inf you know his knowledge was extremely helpful. You guys are amazing athletes. I'm still going gaga. How, how did you train? I mean, I want to know how many, uh, you, you, you told us the Connecticut versus being uh, in a pool. Mm -hmm. uh, Connecticut wins that, uh, that contest for you. But how many laps were you swimming? Were you a high school swimmer? Have you done this for your entire life? Tell us about that part. part so um, actually, I, so I learned to swim around the age of seven or eight. Um, I was on a swim team once in New Jersey, even th but then got mono and um, couldn't swim again. And then we moved to Holland, Massachusetts. Uh, and there were reservoirs and lakes. And I did not. And so I just, uh, my summers I sw spent on the water, fishing, canoeing, s sailboating with my sister. We had a Boston whaler. Uh, we would water ski with my brother as well. And um, I just kept swimming. And um, I didn't swim in high school. Uh, our high school didn't have a, a pool, and then I didn't swim in college, but it, there, it, it was uh, a connection to the river. And actually, when I was uh, 10, it was the first year the Ironman triathlon was televised, and CBS had the wonderful inspirational music, and I saw a silhouette of an athlete running and I um, doing uh, how they advertised it, and I got chills, and I said, one day I'm going to do that. And I did my first Ironman triathlon at Lake Placid, New York in 2010. Um, and then I did another ultra-distance um, triathlon, the same distance, but in Norway, called the Norseman Extreme. I have family in Norway where um, it was fun. You jump off the back of a car ferry into a fjord. You use a massive bonfire as your sighting aid to head in, and you bike from A to B. And then you run C to D, and if you're lucky, you get to finish, um, uh, was it, uh, 6,000 feet above sea level. And um, I wasn't that lucky. I got to finish at 3,000 feet above the sea level and got a white T-shirt instead of a black T-shirt. Oh, my God. Hey, Bill, I once walked all the way to the bathtub and took a bath. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm, I'm glad that story ended. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Kari Kostengo, you your motivation was to raise awareness for this immense significance of the Connecticut River and all the efforts that are taken to reverse the river's historic now water pollution and the ongoing this effort to keep it clean and healthy and swimmable for future generations. I wonder whether you were recently, uh, I read, um, there was a commemoration of the amazing accomplishments of Diana Nyad. She was a woman who swam, I believe, at the English Channel. Um, she swam around Manhattan once. That was when the waters were 
pretty disgusting back then. Mm-hmm. And she famously went from Florida to Cuba. I think that was, was she in any way an inspiration for you or were you aware of her? Uh, I was aware of her and I have utmost respect for her and what she's accomplished. And um, if I'm correct, it took her five attempts to do the Florida to Cuba. and there it, The shark infested water. Yes, right? absolutely. And um, just that, you know, it takes determination if one has a goal and a, a desire to um, do something. And as they say, fall down or get knocked down nine times, get up ten. Yeah, well, mine, if at first you don't succeed, try, try a gun. But <laughs> <laughs> we are talking to Kari Castango. We're going to continue our conversation. Listen, this is a an effort that was uh, intended to raise our awareness of the treasure that we have in the Connecticut River in this region. You can donate um, to the Connecticut River Conservancy, which is... Uh, uh, engage in a heroic effort to keep our river uh, usable and safe. You can find them at ctriver.org and hit that donate button. We'll be right back with Kari. Listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It wasn't necessary and it probably wasn't even appropriate. On the one hand, I don't want that to sound like I don't support schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. Here comes the money. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to whmp.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on whmp.com. I never voyaged so far in all my life. You'll see men you never heard of before whose names you don't know going long way down through the meadows with long ducking guns and watertight boots wading through the meadow grass looking at ducks, teal, blue-wing, green-wing sheldrakes, ospreys, and many other wild and noble sights before night, such as they who sit in parlors never dream of. You shall see rude and sturdy, experienced and wise men, keeping their castles or teaming up their summer's wood, chopping alone in the woods, men fuller of talk and rare adventure in the sun and the wind and chestnut is of meat who were not only out in 1775 and 1812, but have been out every day of their lives. Greater men than Homer or Chaucer or Shakespeare, only they never got the time to say so. They never took to the way of writing. Look at their fields and imagine what they might write if ever they should put pen to paper. This Thoreau reading is brought to you by the Franklin Land Trust. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. 
We continue our conversation with Carrie Costanga, who has completed just recently her 410-mile swim of the entire Connecticut River. I'd like to know more about the swim itself, whether you wore a wetsuit, whether there was a safety boat there, how you went about gauging if sewage would cause a problem, all of those aspects of the swim. Tell us more about that, if you would, please. I'd be happy to. Thanks for the questions. Um, so I did wear, so I, there are times in the middle of the summer where it was too hot to wear a wetsuit, so I wore a bathing suit. Um, I wore a wetsuit, both um, a sleeveless or also a thermal one, which could take me to comfortably to around 50 degrees water or 54. And then I actually, this past year, um, made the decision to buy a dry suit because I wanted to take advantage of the spring runoff up in uh, Vermont and New Hampshire area, and that water temperature was anywhere from 45 to 47. Um, and the I referenced the USGS... Um, the geological gauge, survey. Geological survey uh, site th that there's various gauges along the Connecticut River, and it would give me a sense of how fast the water is moving. And I've been um, able to use the information from the Turner's Falls gauge to help me um, to get a better sense of what numbers mean versus speed of the water. So, for instance, what would have sometimes, uh, well, the s sort of an agreement with the um, dams that, you know, they don't, the timing of when they release or how often they l let the, a lot of water out um, is there's an agreement about different times because uh, a rush of water, uh, of course, impacts erosion. But anyway, um, summer solstice of 2019, I swam the 11 miles from Turner's Falls to Sunderland in two hours and eight minutes. Um, I had a wetsuit with me. Um, shout out to Allison Garvey and Martha Morgan to, uh, in a kayak uh, were with me. I always had somebody next to me either in a canoe or kayak, and it was actually on that swim, Allison had turned to me and said, I think we need a boat. Um, and because the water was moving fast, we were able to get to the Sunderland shore, and, uh, but if there, was, if there was some, if I needed assistance, she would be able to get to me, but we would have missed the Sunderland shore. But on a good note, the Hatfield boat uh, launches just five miles downriver, and the way we were going, we'd be there in a half an hour. It requires so much more planning, Bill. Was there ever a time when you were in serious danger? Um, sh no, never in serious danger, uh, but I did have a, a renewed respect for the river. I was swimming below the Comerford Dam with Tim Lewis. Um, I was, and actually the f there's, I don't know if you've seen the photo of me sitting in the water with the, that was from there. And if uh, I was, I had a grin from my, um, from ear to ear that whole trip. That was one of the top five swims. Um, but what actually what happened right there, the water got very shallow so I couldn't do the crawl stroke, and I was doing the breast stroke, and whenever you lift your head, uh, your hips sink. And um, my pubic bone hit a, hit a rock, and then shortly thereafter, I, got, I took a rock right in the middle of my chest. 
And um, I wasn't moving that quickly, but it was enough to sort of stun me. And you know, if you think about the various sporting events, with you know the timing of getting hit with when my you know heart where it is in a particular oh boy, beat. We just yeah. saw that in the NFL. Exactly. For the, the world-class athlete. Right. So um, I would, you know, so therefore I w was acutely aware of the conditions and made sure I took calculated risks, but ones that um, were, would ensure that I could get out. I'm so glad that you mentioned that, Kari Kasungo, because I, I just want to, I don't want to leave this segment without uh, having you warn listeners, this is not, you're a very strong swimmer, you're a triathlete, yeah. you're an incredible athlete. This is not something that somebody should blithely just jump in the river and try to go long distance. Correct, and I encourage, I encourage you to reach out to your local YMCA or other facilities, learn how to swim um, so that you can have, have a safe and enjoyable experience on the water, whether it's swimming, fishing, kayaking um always go with someone um and the idea is to be able to say you know or to come out alive uh i guess i want to end with anyone who was near old lyme connecticut last week when your swim was celebrated uh, a very dignified panel of speakers spoke about the river spoke about what you had accomplished, spoke about the fundraising effort and the conservancy's work. Um, it, it's amazing what you did. It's amazing the reason why you, you did it. I'd like to give you last word encouraging people to help the conservancy perform its function. Um, thank you. And I also, um, the river is here for you. It's, it's a hidden gem right in front of us. Um, the Connecticut River Conservancy is advocating for each and every one of us, as well as for the uh, wildlife and um, both above and below the water that doesn't have a voice. Um, think about it. You know, this could have been still the most beautiful sewer in New England. And the Connecticut River Conservancy, as well as everybody who's been involved, has turned that around. And I'm very excited that um, the new executive director, Rebecca Todd, uh, is now at the helm. And there are a lot of good things um, that the Connecticut River Conservancy will be doing for us. Conservationist Kari Kostango, thank you and congratulations. It's an amazing achievement. Nothing but respect for you, your athletic abilities, and your love of the river. Thank, thank you. you very much. We'll be right back with Stryker McGuire, the amazing, accomplished journalist, journalist, right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A 41-year-old wearman is facing multiple charges after an attack in Northampton. A police captain ran out of the Center Street station around 2 p.m. upon hearing a woman screaming near the corner of Masonic and Center Streets after being stabbed in the neck with needle-nose pliers. The woman told the captain she'd been stabbed by a man known to her. Another passerby held down the suspect until another officer arrived to place him under arrest. That suspect, Russell Scott Mayo, is expected to be arraigned in Northampton District Court today. Kara Rintala will serve 12 to 14 years in prison for strangling her wife. Judge Francis Flannery delivered the sentence after a passionate speech in the Hampshire Superior Court yesterday. The 
taking of a life is a, a terrible thing. Uh, it's the ultimate harm for Anna Marie was the end of the world. Every experience she ever had or ever would have was taken from her forever. Rintala will receive credit for the seven and a half years she has already spent incarcerated before trial and after her conviction in 2016 before it was overturned on appeal five years later. East Hampton officials are now considering a roundabout to handle increased traffic expected due to a proposed multi-million dollar project near the site of the former Tasty Top off Route 10. The 33-acre development would cost an estimated $30 million. The East Hampton Planning Board has until December 1st to issue a decision on the project. Rain develops from south to north here this morning. The rain could be briefly heavy at times, especially during the middle of the day with a high of 60 to 64. Rain and drizzle continues tonight. Evening temperatures in the 50s, an overnight low of 48 to 54. Showers and drizzle tomorrow, a high of 58 to 62. Looks like tomorrow will be wettest in the morning. And then mostly cloudy with scattered showers on Sunday, a high in the low to mid 50s. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. When it comes to investing, we're taught the higher the risk, the better the reward. Francis Ram, the money doctor, says it isn't necessarily true. We need to remember that with risk comes the potential for losses, and making up losses can set us back or worse, delay our retirement. You've heard the testimonials for years about how her patented program helps people become 100% debt-free, far ahead of schedule. But did you know that for more than 35 years, Dr. Ram has been helping people retire well with Without unnecessary risk, Dr. Ram says most people mistakenly accept that in order to earn attractive interest rates, they must tolerate risk and that choosing safety means settling for lackluster returns. But it doesn't have to be that way. You can earn competitive rates and minimize taxes without risking a single dollar of your hard-earned savings. Contact the money doctor at Hug Your Money for a free consultation. Call 413-773-3333 or visit HugYourMoney.com. You want to feel important. You want to be part of something bigger, something that matters and can help change things. You want to feel like you belong. We know. We felt that way too. And that's why we did something about it. We aren't just Army National Guard soldiers. We are normal people just like you. But our part-time service in the Army National Guard means we get to be more. When our communities are in need, we get the chance to stand up and do something about it. We get to serve in our own region and help the people we call neighbors. From the coasts of Maine, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and New Jersey. The small communities of Connecticut, Delaware, Maryland, and Pennsylvania. To the dense forests of New Hampshire, Vermont, and New York, and historic Washington, D.C. We are here for our hometowns. And together, we can make a difference. Take on your legacy. Visit NationalGuard.com to find out more. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Army National Guard. Aired by the Massachusetts Broadcasters Association at this station. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. Welcome back to the show. Our guest in studio, I am just, uh, I, I can't express how pleased I am to have him, um, formerly of Bloomberg, of Newsweek. Uh, he's written for The Guardian, The Washington Post, uh, British journalist, American journalist, uh, a senior editor at Bloomberg, and a uh, after, I think, almost two decades, maybe more, uh, became the chief of correspondence at Newsweek magazine, Stryker McGuire, fresh in from London. Hello, Stryker. Hey, man. 
It's so glad. I'm so glad to have you in the studio again. So, um, boy, you've been doing journalism for a very long time. A really, really long time. Absolutely. I mean, um, let's see. I my first job that was sort of you might call it kind of journalism was at a little radio station. Wow. In, in San Antonio, Texas. Who knew? Who knew? Uh, and it was. You mean a, there's hope for me yet? Oh yeah! Listen, this uh, although that don't would, don't go too far on this one. Yeah, <laughs> be careful. Be a, this could might be a step down, Buzz. <laughs> this was an FM affiliate of an AM station, and the AM station was a Spanish language station, and the FM affiliate was not. It was KQXT, all music, all the time. <laughs> so that not a lot of not a lot of journalism, but I but we did read uh, two minutes of. UPI like bulletins every half hour or hour or United whatever. Press it was. International. United Press International. Okay. United Press International is gone. Then I went to work for a newspaper in San Antonio, worked there for about seven or eight years. It was one of three newspapers. One newspaper is left. <laughs> then I went to work for Newsweek uh, <laughs> in about 1978. You know, at the time, it was a, such a major force in journalism. Newsweek, Time, New York Times, uh, obviously maybe six, eight other really big newspapers in the country, um, the three television networks, you know, no CNN, obviously no internet, none of that. Um, and when I left Newsweek, uh, which was 30 years later. 30 years. 30 years later. Uh, 2008, I left because I knew what was going to happen to Newsweek. It was already very, very obvious. We, we were, had been losing advertisers like mad for years and years. And sure enough, a year after I left, to nobody's surprise, the magazine was sold for $1. Oh, no, is that true? $1, and, and then the, the, the buyer assumed, I think, $180 million of debt, something like that. So, um, so it was $180 million and $1. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, in a sense. As a practical answer. In a sense, in a sense. But, you know, there was a time when that would have been worth, oh, hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, you know, massively important circulation of... 2.5 million, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then since then, the magazine, which still exists, has gone, gone downhill. Um, the point of all of this is that that old kind of what, what we now call mainstream media is, is much, much smaller. This year, uh, the business, the media industry is expected to lose about 17,000 jobs. It will be the biggest loss uh, uh, ever recorded. And if you look at the charts, basically it's been going down. The numbers of people leaving have been going up uh, for years and years and years now. However, as we all know, that doesn't mean that there's not plenty of information out there. There's actually, we're, there's much more information out there. We probably, all of us, every day are tempted to scream that there's too much information out there. And part of the problem is, is what information is good? What information is bad? What information now is totally made up? 
you know, this, the, the whole deep fake syndrome is scary. I mean, it's really, really scary. And we're going we're Ex- to see it. Explain that to, to someone. So a deep fake is like where, okay, say, um, we use Buzz as an example, right? With AI, artificial intelligence, they take a clip of your voice, uh, say, maybe 20 seconds. That machine can recreate your voice perfectly saying anything that it wants you to say. It doesn't have to be words that you've used. It just, it knows how, how your inflection, it knows everything about your voice, and it can create you saying anything it wants to, which is extraordinarily dangerous. In your case, it would be dangerous, uh, harmful, personally uh, offensive, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But imagine if you're a presidential candidate. Well, that, that's what I was wondering, Stryker McGuire. Uh, you, have, you were covering the O.J. Simpson trial. You were covering uh, immigration issues at a time when they were really important. You had covered California brush trial, the Oklahoma City bombing, the Waco siege. You have covered Gordon Brown and David Cameron in, in London. You've covered major stuff. There is major historical, these are times we're living in that are critical to yeah. our future as a, as a species, for that matter. Um, so as a journalist, you, when you have to check your sources and really research things, you are a researcher, not just a journalist. What does it say to you that journalism is imperiled by what you just described as deep fake and the like? It, it must break your heart. Yeah, it does. It does. I mean, and it's not, on the one hand, you worry about disinformation and misinformation. And on the other hand, you just worry about the loss of numbers. So again, just to take Newsweek, uh, shortly after I left, they closed all of their bureaus in the world. And they, let's say they had 18 or 20 before that. Well, you were the London bureau chief when you left. Yeah. Right? You went from chief of correspondence and London Bureau covered all of Europe, right? Yes. Well, and actually covered most of Europe, most of Europe. And then it closed? It, it closed uh, because it, it's expensive. It's, ex- uh, you know, it's really expensive to run even a, like a, a two-person bureau. Um, basically, you're talking about, you could be talking about a million dollars a year uh, in, in, to run it. So uh, they had to close it purely for financial reasons. So, so now when you have, we seem to have things happening all over the place, right? We thought that Ukraine was like all-consuming. And then now we've got, you know, Israel and Gaza. And so resources are strained. Uh, you have places, the, the, the organizations that are left, like the you know, the New York Times, um, Washington Post to a lesser extent, uh, you know, CNN, they had... The Guardian. The Guardian and the BBC. Uh, uh, those are big news organizations. <coughs> Bloomberg is very big, but Bloomberg has a f- kind of financial focus, so it's different. Even though the number of journalists it has equals the BBC, like 2,500 and... Uh, they have actually, they, Bloomberg has a hundred, well over a hundred bureaus in the world. I mean, it's enormous. 
And you were a senior editor upon your retirement. Yeah, of one of the magazines at Bloomberg. But to go to your point, Buzz, the... Uh, it's hard to cover these events properly. And you not only have to cover them, but then you have to worry, to get back to your other point, you have to worry about things like uh, the disinformation. You know, like we've, I think probably you've seen the various images that have been coming out of, uh, uh, supposedly out of Gaza, for example, that were just made up. They were brought from the past. Many of them are from Syria, but they purport to be taking place in, in Gaza. So as journalists, you not only have to report what's going on, but you have to, you have to kind of deflect all this other stuff. And you're trying to, to keep the information that gets out to people on the sort of straight and narrow. I have a, this is Dan, uh, questions for you. I have so many, but I'm going to try to ask you one or two of them. Um, what do you think the ramifications are for us if news becomes disinformation, misinformation, or whatever it is you want to believe? I mean, what do you think the outcome would be for us to live in society and countries if this, if this is the ultimate outcome? Like, what's your vision, given that you've experienced this for decades? Yeah, I, I think we've We've seen it now for a number of years what, what one of the outcomes is, and that is that um, people can latch on to a, a, a particular idea or conspiracy theory or a, a political position that then becomes reinforced day after day by algorithms that are simply feeding them stuff that supports their position you don't have people flipping through a newspaper and getting different points of view, different outlooks, most of it, you know, very accurate, et cetera, et cetera. And so you end up with, you end up with people out there subscribing to theories of like, say, uh, something like the anti-vax movement. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're, they're fed things that support that point of view. Now, there is an element, of, I think, of the anti-vax movement, which, which, which goes back to, to some, maybe some reasonable complaints about mm -hmm. vaccines and over-vaccination and so forth. But it got so out of hand mm -hmm. that we know what it did. And then you get people like there's this, this guy in the UK who has like a YouTube channel with, I mean, think about this. When you take your audience, this guy, I think he's in Scotland somewhere. YouTube channel with like 2.5 million subscribers. And he's saying that more people in the UK, he says more people died of vaccinations than of not being vaccinated. I mean, it's, it's totally, and you know, the media, the regular media picked it up, showed that there's, that's absolutely, there's no way that that's true. And he eventually disavowed that, you know, took the post down and so on mm -hmm. and so forth. But that happens all the time. Mm. And so you get with, um, with January 6th and Trump, you know, mm. you get all these different uh, uh, sort of belief clusters that, are, that can end up being really, really dangerous. And I think that's what happens, Dan, mm -hmm. is, that, is that people uh, 
they lose perspective and they're just their their view is reinforced so then quick follow-up is the answer to that to limit those speeches so meaning the company you said YouTube had 2.5 million. Should they be like, hey, you've, your account has been suspended? Or is the answer in your mind the listeners being educated on how to decipher between misinformation, disinformation, and things that are totally made up? It has to be, you know, <coughs> excuse me. It has to be both, but mostly it needs to be education because I think freedom of speech is so important that you don't want to... You don't want people cut off just because it's convenient and it pleases a certain group of people. So that is a very, very tricky thing to do. Well, Strike me, why? I, I try to put myself in your shoes. You have spent an entire career uh, fact-finding, truth-seeking. Uh, everything that we non-journalists um, admire about journalism is seeking sources that are reliable and confirming that those sources are, in fact, uh, sources that you should be relying on, and um, the uh, investigative research that goes into a story in order to get to the truth. It, it must be, for someone who spent an entire career, more than a half a century, doing just that, it's got to be heartbreaking. What you just described just is so saddening. Well, yeah, I mean, you can imagine. I think if you're in your field of justice, <coughs> Sorry about this cough. He came uh, from London and got a cold. That's what that's what happens here. It happens. Earth. Must be our weather here. <laughs> it must be. It must be the rain. I'm just never. Uh, what is this stuff that comes out of the sky? <laughs> we all know about London fog. We all know about climate change, uh, but still. Uh, anyway, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, the, the depressing. Thank you nature. for explaining that because it is hard. Um, if you take, look what's happened to the ju justice system, you know, since, since say, 9-11. Um, that's when I began to notice some pretty serious changes. And you did cover the O.J. Simpson trial. <coughs> yes. Although I think, you know, that was a circus. Right. Um, and, you know, the outcome, obviously, in dispute, et cetera, et cetera. But um, the way laws were... First of all, written, passed, and enforced after 9-11, it's pretty dramatic, you know. And, and then after Trump came into office, you had, you, had uh, you know, justices being appointed. It wasn't, I think we focus on the Supreme Court, but of course it was hundreds of district court judges, right, appeals court judges, um, and so the character of justice begins to change. So that's something that I think must make people, lawyers like you two, who were in sort of the civil liberties side of things, I mean, you too must, must sometimes be really anxious about, uh, about what's going on. Anxious? Do you have other adjectives like apoplectic? Apoplectic <laughs> is a good one. That's an A. We, a. <laughs> Another A. Yeah. And, and we're going to continue with the alliteration. Illiter yeah. No, we want to continue with the alliteration. <laughs> okay. okay. We better not. Well, come on, we're journalists here. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. I, I think we are talking to Stryker McGuire, and we're going to continue that conversation. We're not uh, giving short shrift to the how lawyers, civil liberty lawyers, feel about the state of justice. But when we come back, 
I have a big question about the state of journalism and its future of Stryker McGuire. We'll be right back after this. You know. The Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Tag your it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Tom Hartman program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to three right here on WHMP. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Rutabaga, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Bring your garden indoors with Winesick Nursery in Hadley. Create an indoor farm with herbs, annuals, and porch plants in a sunny window or under a grow light when temps dip to 50 degrees. Winesick has colorful pottery pots, potting soil, watering cans, misters, plant foods, and starter supplies, plus a beautiful selection of indoor plants and exotic plants to add to your indoor farm. Winesick Nursery on Route 9 in Hadley and at winesicknursery.com. We are the growers. Come to the source. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts and messages from community nonprofits. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are joined in studio by Stryker McGuire, who... uh, the much celebrated uh, re- recognition. If I led, read the list of recognitions and awards, uh, it would embarrass him, and it would take too much of the time that I would like to allocate to actually having a conversation. But the amazing striker McGuire, I urge you to Google him, and uh, you'll see just how accomplished he is as a journalist. How much we have to thank him for in terms of informing us. And I guess that's where I'd like to take our conversation, striker, because. Um, we are, uh, there was a normal. There were, there were questions. Originally I read, I think I was 17 when I read Fred Fernley's book, the CBS uh, Innovator, and he talked about the need for neutrality on the part of journalists. And the conversation in the next 20 years was, can a journalist ever be truly neutral? Yeah. We all bring our biases and our prejudices with us, whatever we do. Um, and that used to be the conversation. Now the conversation it's much more disheartening to me because it involves uh, the assumption that uh, whoever the journalist is is going to be not is going to be biased and uh, in in a really bad way that the the facts they're presenting are not actually 
even an aspiration of neutrality doesn't exist. And I'm wondering, as a journalist of so many years who's seen the kind of changes you've been describing, what is the state of journalism now, and what's the hope for the future of a journalism that informs us accurately of the world around us so we can make decisions accordingly? Well, there's got to, you, you kind of have to have hope for the future in the sense that uh, we just will completely fall apart as a society if we don't have information on which we can base our entire decision-making process, whether it's about, you know, consumer spending on the one hand or presidential candidates on the other. Um, th this, the whole question of truth versus uh, objectivity and accuracy and so forth, it's, uh, it may never be resolved. Um, I don't know whether you've read here about the, the sort of quandary that the BBC has found itself in because it doesn't use the word terrorist in its own voice when it describes Hamas, for example. It, according to its rules of impartiality, and impartiality is sort of the foundation of its news reporting code, um, impartiality doesn't allow it to use a morally charged word like terrorist. So it, when it talks about Hamas, and it's been criticized a lot, when it talks about Hamas, it describes it as an organization which many Western governments, including the U.S. and the U.K., uh, have proscribed as a terrorist organization, something like that. Um, but they are trying to hold that line where they believe that they, that's the way that they maintain their credibility. And for an organization like the BBC, that's so important because the BBC is out there in so many different places and in so many different languages. You know, they broadcast in Farsi and Arabic and, and therefore credibility is really, really important. Uh, for them. This is also true of other news organizations, and, and, but they're getting hammered all the time for slipping in one direction or the other or being seen to slip in one direction or the other. Yeah, by not mentioning the word terror in describing Hamas, they are in fact uh, legitimating um, that which should not be legitimated by most civilized standards. Yeah, they, they would argue that they, by describing, they, 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 their reporting is very accurate. And the reporting, in a sense, they would say, look, the reporting speaks for itself. We then describe Hamas as a terrorist organization proscribed by other, uh, by governments and so forth. But we are trying to hold on to this thing that gives us credibility. So in the very short time, maybe 30 seconds we have left, where do you want to leave listeners in terms of the future, the state of journalism? Well, I guess really try to get different opinions and different sources of information and, and try to uh, bring balance into your own sort of menu of news. What a great place to leave it. Thank you so much, Stryker McGuire. It is always, it's an, it's an honor to know you. It's an honor to have you here on Talk to Talk with us. Um, listeners, it's an honor to have you listening to our show. Um, like Stryker McGuire, don't just talk the talk, walk the walk.
This week's Shop Tuesday is Pristine Orientals. This Tuesday at 9 a.m., Pristine Orientals releases gift certificates for their rug cleaning service. Pristine Orientals' chemical-free rug cleaning process leaves no odor and no residue. Your rug gets a gentle bath. It's really the only way to treat a rug. And this Tuesday, you save 30%. Pristine Orientals Rug Cleaning, available this Shop Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. I'm Lisa Riley. Join me every Saturday at 9.30 a.m. here on WHMP as we share stories that shine a light on justice-involved individuals or just underdogs in the game of life, their struggles, their successes, and the many resources and opportunities available for those who are hustling to carve a new path and prove that failure isn't final. So unlock your future, rewrite your story. This is The Hustler Files. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls, WHMP.com.